If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3 and verse 8. If you're visiting with us this morning, glad that you're here. Uh, We, as a church, are preparing for Christmas and preparing for the celebration of that time when God the Son left the splendors and joys of heaven and came to earth and dwelt among us. It's a wonderful time of year, and it's, uh, it's one that is, I think, very uh, easy for us to celebrate uh, because of how joyous it is. And this year, uh, we are spending the Sundays leading up to Christmas in the book of Zephaniah, which talks about the coming hope that God is going to send for His people. And that, of course, is very appropriate uh, for Christmas. When you have that, if you'll stand with me this morning, Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Zephaniah writes for us, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that moment I will change the speech of the people's to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouths a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. You may be seated. I hope this morning the Lord will add to the reading of His Word. As we come here to these last sermons from the book of Zephaniah, I think it is very clear that God is, in His mercy and in His grace, He has provided for all of us and for His people hope in days that seem to be filled with destruction. Hope in days that seem to be filled with great difficulty. Hope even when those who are reading this passage, when they're hearing Zephaniah share this, they can have hope even though there seems to be none. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, you would hear things like, this 
I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Not a lot of hope there. Not a lot of hope to be found in that passage. There seems to be an abundance of judgment. There seems to be an abundance of God's punishment. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope. But as we have progressed through the book, what we have begun to see is that God, in every situation, no matter how dire it is, no matter how bad things seem to be, God is a God who always provides hope. And we're going to see that again this morning. Let's begin in verse 8. And we see a very interesting concept. At the end of verse 8, after the people have been told to wait for God, he says there at the end, For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. It's interesting to think that God is a jealous God. We do not um, associate jealousy with something good. As a matter of fact, we understand that when we are jealous of something, it is a sign that sin is creeping into our heart. It's not a good thing. It's when we want something that someone else has. Most of the time, when you and I are jealous, we are jealous of things that we have no business being a part of. In ministry, this is a very big problem often. I don't know how many times I have sat in a meeting of pastors and I would hear one pastor share about what God was doing at his church. And he would say something to the effect of, well, yesterday we had this many people saved or we baptized this many people or we had this many people join our church. And it's always a trigger for me if I'm sitting in that meeting of pastors because I know more often than not, it will not be long before someone else will speak up and their numbers will somehow miraculously be more impressive. Well, you had three people baptized, we had ten. You had five new members, we had twenty. You know, these are Baptist numbers, they're inflated quite a bit. And all that is is jealousy. When you, I have a number of friends who have been very successful in ministry. They've seen great things happen. And it is a real temptation not to wonder, God, why is that happening to them? God, especially because I know some of my friends and they couldn't preach their way out of a brown paper bag. Some of them are about as enthusiastic as a brick wall, but somehow God uses them. And yet I've heard wonderful preachers who put together wonderful sermons and had all the charisma available to them, and they were in small, dying churches. Why would God choose to do that? Well, it's because God knows what He's doing, and He has a plan, and He calls us not to be jealous. So jealousy is not a good thing, and yet here God talks about being jealous. Why? 
Well, it's because He can be. See, if you look at all those situations, you look at the pastors who are jealous, none of them deserve to get anything from God. Not one of us deserves to get even the first blessing from God, much less all the blessings that we have. Therefore, we have no right or reason to be jealous. But the same can't be said for God. God has every right to be jealous. He has every reason to be jealous. Because every time something is going to someone else instead of Him, He has a claim to make. He has a right to be upset. Every time we thank someone other than Him for a blessing, He has the right to be angry about it. Because it was from Him. Every time someone stands up and tells you that God didn't create all that there is, but rather it came from some large explosion tens of billions of years ago and single-cell organisms at some point rose out of the water, well, guess what? God has a right to be jealous about that because you're giving credit for this wonderful thing that He has made somewhere else. And He doesn't like that. Here specifically, I believe He is talking about the worship that is being given to all of these false idols. His people and the people of the world are worshiping anything and everything but Him. And so of course, of course God can stand and be jealous because He is the only one who deserves. He is the only one who deserves our attention, and our affection. The Bible portrays the relationship that we have with God like a marriage. Let me promise you, and you are probably well aware of this, if you begin to give your affections somewhere other than your spouse, all of a sudden they have the right to be very jealous because that's their affection. That's what they have been given when you stood at that altar or in front of the justice of the peace or in a chapel in Pigeon Forge somewhere, wherever it was, if you're in Vegas and it just happened, they still deserve your affection because you promised it to them. And you may say, well, not everybody promises their affection to God. They didn't get a choice in the matter. He made them, and as Creator, He deserves and will demand their affection. And so God stands here jealous. He demands to be the center of our worship. And what's interesting about this is that in that moment of God's jealousy, in this moment as we read in verse 8 of the earth being consumed and Him pouring out His indignation, we expect that we're going to see again the punishment and judgment that God has been talking about for the first two chapters of Zephaniah. But that's not what happens here. In God's jealousy, He does something good for the people. He doesn't destroy them with His jealousy. Yes, the earth is consumed by His jealousy, but look what happens. In verse 9, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. We fully expect if we're reading verse 8 that God, when He is jealous about what is going on, that He is going to just destroy the people. 
that He's going to punish them. We've been talking about in this entire book the day of the Lord, and it is a, a powerful and frightening day. It is a day where God does pour out His judgment and wrath, but it also is a day with great hope, and we begin to see that very clearly here. Because He changes the speech of the people. See, this book has been full of, and the Old Testament is full of, of incident after incident where people pledge their allegiance to other gods. They use this voice that God has given them and they exalt these gods that really and truly do not exist. They give their worship to something that is false. And so God in His jealousy begins to change their speech. He begins to change what they are doing. And Zephaniah records it as a change to a pure speech. Some of the commentaries that I read in getting ready for this sermon, they take this incident here in Zephaniah, and they trace it all the way back to the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel. If you remember that account, the entire world spoke one language. And in their pride, they decided that they were going to build a tower to God. That's pretty funny now thinking about it because we understand eventually that it got so high that they would have ran out of oxygen or they would have burned up in the atmosphere. But nonetheless, in their pride, they decided they were going to do that. And it made God angry. And it's interesting that it makes God angry even though God obviously knew that at some point they would get up there and run out of oxygen or burn themselves up in the atmosphere. But he was still angry because of their pride. And so the Bible tells us that God confused their languages and scattered them around the face of the earth. And some of the commentaries drew back to this idea here. That at that time when God brings the world together, when He gives the world this pure speech, that it would be a reversal of what happened in the Tower of Babel, that the people would once again be humble instead of prideful in trying to get to God. I don't know for sure that this is exactly what Zephaniah is talking about. But it's definitely an image that God bringing the people of the world back together. I think we understand this text when we look at passages like Philippians 2, 9-11. Paul says this about Jesus. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And listen to this. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul envisions a time when God would draw all people unto Himself. And regardless of what circumstance it was in, all people would bow and confess that Jesus was Lord. How interesting it is to me that in His jealousy here, in His desire to be worshipped, Him and Him alone. He doesn't just punish the people, but He gives them the ability to worship Him. It's it's because God wanted to be worshipped. It's because God wanted His creation to turn back to Him that He makes it available to them to worship Him with a pure voice. That He removes from them their desire to worship these false gods and they begin to worship Him wholeheartedly. 
Look what happens with this change of speech. Two things he shows here. First, they will call on the name of the Lord. They weren't doing this before. And I would submit to you that it is impossible without God pushing into our lives, without God speaking into our lives, without God showing us His mercy because of His jealousy, that we're able to call on the name of the Lord. See, they called on the name of these false gods, and it, it didn't take any effort to do so. They were tempted into it. They, they wanted to, to give in to these false gods. But when God speaks to them, when He calls out to them, they call on His name. And then look, secondly, they serve Him with one accord. These are people who have bowed down to the other gods. These are the people who have served them greatly. These are the people who have turned their children over to false gods. These are people who have turned their crops over to false gods, who have sacrificed their animals to these false gods, who have made pilgrimages to the places to worship these false gods. But here, when God acts, when God in His jealousy changes their speech, they begin to serve the Lord. No longer do they serve these other gods, but they serve Him. Friends, God, when He saves us, when He speaks into our heart and the Spirit of God lives in our life, when we confess His name and when our lives are radically changed by the saving power of Christ, it changes our allegiances it changes our speech. Not just in the words that we say. We, you know, you stop cussing because you get saved or whatever. It's, it's radically more than that. It's literally the things that we say. It's, it's the way that we say them. It's the things that we find are important to us. God takes those things that once were consumed by sin, once were things that worshipped these false gods, and He changes them to a pure speech, one that worships Him, one that follows Him, one that submits to Him. God does that. We don't. If it's left up to us, we'd continue to worship those false gods. We'd continue to be just like the people and go in our own direction. But God changes us. And look how he does it. He, he begins to show us in verse 11. He says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. What does he do here in verse 11? God, in spite of everything that they have done, in spite of their sin, in spite of their idol worship, in spite of the fact that they have proudly, proudly disobeyed Him, God forgives them. 
He says, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. He forgives them. Why does he forgive them? I don't see any evidence here that they have turned their lives around. You know, that's what most of the religions of the world teach. And honestly, that's what many people who occupy the seats of Baptist churches believe. They believe that forgiveness is you turning your life around. You doing better. If you're a drunk, that you stop drinking. If you're a drug addict, that you stop using drugs. If you're a chronic liar, that you start telling the truth. If you like to steal money, that you put it back and pay it back. That's what we think of as salvation most of the time. And to be quite honest, that's what many of us think of as forgiveness. But nothing could be further from the truth. Where did they do that at? Where did they turn their lives around at? Where did they stop worshiping the idols? You you can't find it because it's not there. This is unmerited forgiveness. They did nothing to deserve this. As a matter of fact, when you look at this text, what you come away with is the only reason that that God forgives them is because they are His people. He says on that day, which day? This day of great judgment and this day of great hope. The day of the Lord. The day that the whole book of Zephaniah is talking about. He says, on that day you will not, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. He said, if I don't do anything, if I leave it the way it is, on that day, on that day of judgment, you are going to fall in with everybody else. You're going to face this judgment just like everyone else. But he says, I'm not going to do that to you. He offers forgiveness, even though they don't deserve it, even though they can't earn it, even though they're never going to be good enough. Friends, that's where you and I are at today. God has extended us forgiveness that we cannot earn, that we cannot work toward, and that we cannot receive on our own. We have no power to make it happen. We have nothing within us that would draw us to God. There is nothing that would make us want to stop worshiping our false idols and going in the the wrong direction. But God extends forgiveness. He He just gives it to us. Because we're His. He's jealous because we're His. Again, go back to the marriage situation The person is jealous if the affection goes somewhere else. And God, infinitely more so. But instead of being the one who just casts us out, who says, you have went astray, you have worshipped someone else, you have went your own direction, God says, no, I will bring you back and I will forgive you. And on that day, when all of this is happening, you will not be put to shame because you are my people. Now, there are some things that will happen. He says, I'll remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. 
You shall no longer be haughty in My holy mountain. He's going to humble them, but He's going to save them. He's going to give them grace. If you read back, go and look back in the first two chapters, He doesn't give them a free pass. He doesn't just say, hey, your sin is okay. It's no big deal. There's great turmoil that happens, but in the end, God gives them grace. You and I as believers do not need to walk around with our chest puffed out because we have been saved and think that we have a free ride. I would promise you that in this life, it's those who call after Christ who suffer the greatest for their sin. There is no free pass. But God offers us grace and forgiveness where we could not earn it on our own. And what it does, when God gives us this grace and forgiveness, what it does for His people here in Zephaniah, there is a transformation that takes place. And we see that in verses 12 and 13. They go from a life that is full of wickedness that causes the Lord to be jealous To here in verses 12 and 13, we begin to see what the forgiven life looks like. This is what people who have been forgiven by God look like. Beginning in verse 12, But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. The first characteristic of the forgiven life, the first characteristic of those who God has forgiven by His grace is humility. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we we talked about pride because I I believe that's a central characteristic that that Zephaniah is going to, to hit on here. Why does God need to leave people that are humble? Friends, it's because pride is the greatest temptation that I believe we face. And it very well may be worse now than it has ever been. We, each and every day, are given the opportunity, clearly given the opportunity, to be prideful toward the things of God. I was watching an interview last night on CNN or MSNBC or one of those. And they were interviewing Rick Warren and they were asking Rick Warren about his views on different issues. And it got to the end and the, the commentator is just nasty and most of them are. And he was just very nasty toward Rick Warren. And he, he basically told him that, that it was impossible for Rick Warren to be a, a decent person who believed in equality for people if he didn't believe this, that, or the other. And so he asked Rick Warren at the end, and it's, it's, it's a very prideful question to ask anyone, but he, he, he pointed at him and he asked him, he said, do you think you'll ever change? Do you think you'll ever change on this? Do you think you and the rest of Christians will ever come around and realize that you're wrong? And Rick Warren looked back at him, and it was, it was a moment where I was very proud for Rick Warren. He said, No. He said, because I'm a lot more concerned about the way God feels about me than I care about what you think. He didn't just say people either. He pointed at the commentator and said him, which I thought was very appropriate. Well, why would that even be an issue? 
It's because each and every day we are told that the things that we believe are completely wrong. And not only that, that we are stupid for believing them. I was listening to famed atheist Christopher Hitchens in a debate not too long ago. He's dead now, but it was a recorded debate. And, and he started out his, his part of the debate, his speech at the beginning, by basically saying that, that it's foolish to believe the things that are in the Bible. That a learned person in 2000, in the 21st century, cannot believe those things. It is simply impossible for someone with any type of intellect to believe those things. Well, friends, what that does is that puts out a temptation for each and every one of us to begin to look at God's Word, to begin to think about this book. And to think about what it says about who God is, and sometimes more importantly, who we are. And begin to dismiss it. Because it doesn't line up with contemporary science, or psychology, or sociology, or physics. It doesn't line up with those, so it must not be true. Psychology and sociology both tell us that at our core, human beings are ultimately good. The Bible tells us that at our core, in every other part of us, we are ultimately bad. Friends, if we believe the modern teaching that, we do, that we're good, then why do we need a Savior? What do we need to be saved from? What do we need to be saved to? But it's an easy temptation to fall into to say, well, I know the Bible says, but. I know the Bible says, but my science book says this, or I know my Bible says the Bible says this, but my psychology book says this, or I I, I know my the Bible says this, but my teacher told me that. Or the celebrity on television or the newspaper or whatever. All that is is a pride problem. Because it takes humility to say, the Bible says this and I believe it in spite of what I'm told. Trust me. Get down to the main thing that the Bible says. The number one thing that the Bible says You can throw out any of the rest of them. The Bible says that on the third day, a dead man walked out of a tomb. Science tells you that's impossible. You either have to humble yourself and believe that or reject everything else. If you can't believe that on the third day, God called Jesus out of the tomb, then none of the rest of it matters. You can believe in in six days of creation. You can believe in a flood. You can believe that the walls came tumbling down and the waters parted. But if you don't believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, then you have no hope. It takes humility to do that. Marvin here works at a funeral home. People dead three days do not get up. Lazarus was dead four And you know it was real because his sister said, don't roll the stone away, he's going to stink. It's not pride that believes that. It's humility. And God is making for himself 
a people who are humble. And I believe it's the greatest temptation to be prideful. It's greater than than any temptation of money. It's greater than any temptation of sexual immorality. It's the greatest temptation is to be prideful toward God. The forgiven life is humble. Secondly, he says, A people humble and lowly, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. The forgiven life seeks refuge in the Lord. We oftentimes will seek our refuge everywhere else. Young people will seek them in relationships. Older people will seek them in relationships. We seek our refuge in our money. We seek our refuge in our jobs. We seek it in the security of a free nation. We seek refuge in so many places, and yet God has told us point blank and clearly that those who live the forgiven life will seek refuge in Him. It is the only place where we are safe and secure. It is the only place where we can find hope. Because trust me, every other thing that we can seek refuge in can be taken away from us. It can be gone in a moment. But not so for those who seek refuge in the Lord. Secondly, or thirdly here, he says, they shall do no injustice. Our God is a God of justice. And His people should also be a people of justice. We should think very clearly about the things that we do. We should be very careful in our dealings with other people. It is an easy, to give you an easy example, it's kind of silly, I guess, but I'm coaching my son's basketball team, and the way the league is set up, you have to do certain substitutions so that every kid gets to play and all that, But, but in the fourth quarter, the fourth quarter is the coach's dream. Because in the fourth quarter, there are no rules about substitution. And so you, what, you play your best five players, right? And they play the whole quarter, and that's how you win. Is that really fair to the other kids who came out, worked their butts off? You know, they're eight years old, so it's not like they're all going to be Michael Jordan. Matter of fact, none of them are Michael Jordan. None of them are probably Michael Jordan at six years old as opposed to eight years old. You know, they just don't have that skill set. That's not how they are. I mean, poor Jason over here, he can't even dribble a basketball. But we played three games so far, and guess what? Every kid's played in the fourth quarter. And we've won two games, and, you know, it was tied. One of the games was tied, or the minute left, and every kid still played in the fourth quarter. And one of the games we were behind, and we needed to make up some points. And I got a couple kids that can't even hit the rim, but they played in the fourth quarter. See, that's... Again, it's not a great example. But being fair in our dealings is about doing no injustice. About treating people equally is is doing justice. Treating people equally, even people we don't agree with, 
even people that we don't like the things that they do. Even people that have just not lived up to the standard that we would have. Still doesn't mean that we can't treat people with fairness. You know, I've read recently about people who have left receipts at restaurants and they didn't like the lifestyle of their waiter. You know, maybe they even, of course, I've never had a deep enough conversation with any of my waiter to find out who that they, they um, have living in at their house and their relationships, but apparently some people do. And some people found out things they didn't like, and so they, they didn't leave them a tip. How ridiculous is that? I mean, I've been in restaurants before where I've seen waitresses get mistreated, and I left them a bigger tip because I figured the guy beside me probably just left church and wasn't going to leave him a tip. You know, they hate working on Sunday because so many Christians are, Christians are jerks to them. It's not justice. It's not how God would do it. Jesus is very clear. Jesus points out people's sin. Jesus doesn't let it go, but Jesus also shows love and kindness. And we need to do the same. That's what the forgiven life looks like. Fourthly here, speak no lies. It's interesting that Jesus calls himself the truth and his followers should be those who tell the truth as well. The truth is hard. Going back to the first thing about humility, if you want to get up in the world in which we live, you you young people need to think about this. If you want to stand up for Jesus in your school, it's going to mean telling the truth and it's it's going to mean being ridiculed for it because it's not appreciated. Yeah, I get away with it sometimes because I'm a preacher and people expect that I'm going to say, you know, off-the-wall stuff, people need to be saved, stuff like that. But trust me, when you do it, people are going to look at you differently. There's to be no lies. There's also to be no deceit. Deceit is different than lying. Deceit is when you get something your way and you might not have lied about it, but the way you went about it was a little bit shady. He says, for that not to happen... No deceit. The deceitful tongue shall not be there. We do not talk our way around things. Friends, too often this happens in churches in a way that many of us would look at and say is good. Oftentimes I believe we are deceitful with people about what it means to be a believer in Christ. We often tell people if they'll walk up to the front and they'll pray a prayer with the preacher and they'll get baptized that that's what it entails. I think we found out the last few weeks that it entails a lot more than that. That it's a lot harder than that. We need to be open and honest about people. It's not about getting people through the baptistry. It's not about getting people through the waters or their names on membership cards. It's about telling them about the gospel. And we, as the church, should not be deceitful in those things. And then finally, the last thing that he lists here. If you go to the end of verse 13... He says, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. He switches imagery here at the end of verse 13, and he begins to use the imagery of a sheep. Obviously, this is an image that if you've been in church very long, you you know is there quite often. And he says that when he has done these things, when people have been forgiven and he has given them new life, they shall graze and lie down, and none shall be or none shall make them afraid. He's talking 
by the fact that in the forgiven life, our security is found in the shepherd. If you think about it, sheep, if they're scared, if they're being chased, they're not going to lie down and graze. They're going to be running for their lives. If they're being pursued by wolves or by lions, they're going to be running for their lives. But the forgiven life is not about running around panicking, but it's about grazing and lying down. See, I'm always struck by the number of believers who spend their life panicked. They're constantly worried. And listen, there's a lot to worry about. There's a lot to worry about in this life. There's a lot to worry about with everything going on. But the Christian life, the forgiven life, is not a life that we spend panicked. But rather, it's a life where we find our security in the shepherd. Look, what he says, and none shall make them afraid. You know, we're down to the end. There, there are two more messages from Zephaniah, and they're both about hope. They're both about the coming Lord and the, the praise that we can sing to God because He is coming. But friends, we have all of our hope in the fact that we find our security in Christ. I'm afraid that most of the Christians that I've known, that's, that's not where their security is. Just to be quite honest with you, there are plenty of times when that's not where my security is. You know, you get online and you open up your bank account and you, you figure up your bills and you look at what you got there and you realize the two don't match up very well. We look at the problems facing our world and we, we think about the fact that crazy guys go into schools and shoot kids. Or terrorists fly planes in a building. Just last week, there, were, there was nuclear material stolen in Mexico. And they recovered it. But what if they didn't? Guys strap it to a bomb, they take it to a major city, and they set it off. Lots of people die. I don't find a lot of security in, in thinking those things won't happen. The world's too big. There's too many evil people out there. There's too many people who are thinking right now how they might cause you harm. And so we panic. And we run around frantic. And we worry about everything that's happening. And yet God tells us that His people will graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. See, sheep, you know, sheep aren't the wisest animals. They're not very ferocious. They don't really have any natural defense against predators and they have plenty of predators. Their only hope is found in the shepherd. He's got his staff. Sometimes he uses it to hit the wolves. Sometimes he uses it to knock them up beside the head. That's where our security is. Because honestly, we have no defense. Our life is a vapor that is falling away. It is dissolving quickly. It is gone. but our security is in the shepherd. Friends, I want to encourage you with this, that God, 
God found you if you know Him. He found you though you were being disobedient. He found you though you were going your own way. He found you though you had no thought of Him. He found you, and because of His jealousy, because of His desire for you to worship Him and not somebody else, He has offered you forgiveness. And this forgiveness translates into a new life. The great thing that you and I can know is that as we come to celebrate Christmas and we celebrate the birth of Christ, we are celebrating the birth of our Savior, who would not remain a baby in a manger, but would grow into a man, a man who lived a life that was completely pleasing to God, who was without sin. And without sin, He went to the cross and died for us. See, if you go back... And you look at Zephaniah 1 and you read these things, we see the destruction that is promised those who live in sin without hope. But friends, we do not live there if we know Christ. We have hope through His death. He has died in our place. And through that we have life. Some of you are here this morning, you don't know Christ, you're going your own way, you're worshiping your idols, you know that, you're well aware of it. I've told you it for 10 months now, you, you know I want to remind you once again that Christ, Christ has died for you. See, all this stuff is real. Everything that he has said here, I believe, is real. I don't know what it's going to look like exactly, but it's coming. And it's not here to scare you. It's here to show you how merciful our God is that even in our sin He would forgive us. And so this morning I would call on you once again to turn from your idols and your sin and turn to Christ. And for those of you here who know Him, achievement of this list is a lifetime endeavor. Humility and seeking the Lord for refuge, doing no injustice and speaking no lies, a tongue that is not deceitful, and finding your security in the shepherd is a lifetime endeavor. But it's what God has called His people to. As hard as it is, as difficult as it is, God has called His people to that. And so I would ask you this morning, has God given you forgiveness Has God given you forgiveness through His Son? If so, He's called you to live a life that reflects that forgiveness. And He calls us again this morning to renew our commitment to following Him. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, we... God, we're grateful. We're grateful that we we have hope that the future is not dark, gloomy. The future is not scary. And the reality is, in the long term, the future is not difficult. 
compared to the weight of sin that we have upon us, your burden is, is so very light. So God, I just ask you this morning that you would speak to your people. Lord God, we would just we would see the need that we have to find our refuge in you. To find our security in you. God, tear down our pride and our deceit. God, destroy our lives. God, help us to do no injustice to those around us. But God, remind us daily that we have been forgiven a great debt that we could not pay. And that we can humbly follow you. God, the author of our hope. Lord, I thank you for speaking this morning. And I just pray, God, that you would call your people to respond. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.